0: Uh, as my colleague Dr. Rosell said, President Bush has definitely exercised, or has attempted to exercise, an expansive use of executive privilege. Um, pretty much it's been a flawed use, and more likely than not, the examples or the cases he's used to expand executive privilege will have the opposite effect than what he intended, which is the expansion of presidential power. Now, in, um, there there's various cases that we can go over to uh, uh, show the, the uh, defined, or at least President Bush's, uh, uh, definition of executive power, expand use of executive power, but I think three are telling. Um, not just with presidential power, but I think with interbranch relations with Congress. Now, the first is actually also his first claim of executive privilege, and this had to do with uh, President Bush's uh, uh, EP claim on documents relating to a closed Department of Justice investigation into an uh, FBI uh, corruption uh, uh, scandal with the uh, Boston mob. Now, the House Government Reform Committee sought these documents. You know, this is a corruption case on the FBI. This is a case that had been, by the way, closed for 20 years. So over two decades. The Bush administration said no to disclosure. They said, you're not getting these documents. Again, a case that had been closed for 20 years. Um, Typically on executive privilege claims for ongoing uh, uh, criminal investigations, that's okay. It's an ongoing criminal investigation. This one was not. So... What ended up happening, and I think was probably the, the uh, best thing you can say about congressional Republicans during the early part of the Bush administration is that they coalesced together and countered executive power. So you had Republican members of Congress pushing against the Bush administration, or I should say pushing against President Bush's claim of executive privilege. They, they, they pushed against this claim, and they eventually, uh, after seeking these documents, Uh, received some of the documents and claimed victory, and that's the only time that Congressional Republicans pressed against any EP claims by the uh, Bush administration. Um, A brief uh, example of of, uh, a year later when the uh, when the administration was again claiming secrecy on uh, an Energy Task Force case, you had congressional Republicans who obviously were still in control of Congress from 2001, pretty much 2001-2006, that year where Jeffords switched parties. Um, That case, Republicans didn't press for disclosure of issues for the Energy Task Force case. And this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And it's tragic in many ways, and the one I want to highlight here is this Energy Task Force case became a Supreme Court case where it gave the executive, I think, a a tool, if you will, for future use of executive power and executive privilege. And again, this is an Energy Task Force case, Supreme Court case dealing with Cheney and the vice presidency. Now, the second example, I want to give is uh, an executive order and uh, dr. Holt had uh, spoke about executive orders and saying that you know uh, uh, most of them are going to be overturned and I do agree with that uh, this is one I think that's high profile enough where it could be overturned and why I say that is uh, Bush's executive order had to deal with the presidential Records Act of nineteen seventy eight now the presidential Records Act is by and large, a housekeeping act that Congress passed in order for there to be a proper or timely disclosure of uh, administrative documents uh, after uh, a certain number of years had passed. Well, uh, President Reagan had signed into law executive order during his time in office, uh, restricting somewhat uh, uh, the disclosure of information. However, President Bush in his first year in office he modified President Reagan's uh, executive order, greatly expanding the power of current and former presidents to uh, uh, guard information. And what I mean by that? Well, first, he the executive order allows for current presidents to place executive privilege claims on any former administration or previous administration presidential documents, and do that so indefinitely. So a current president could. Uh, incoming President Obama or or this administration could place uh, executive privilege claims on Clinton, on uh, the first Bush, on Reagan. Uh, The second component of this is that former presidents have executive power now. They have the ability to claim executive power. Again, let me say former presidents have executive power. Uh, 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 that's what they can do is they can claim executive privilege on their own documents and do so indefinitely. Now Congress really did not push back on this and again this is a time when uh, uh, Congressional Republicans were in uh, control of Congress. Uh, by and large you had c- uh, special interest groups that went to court to try to overturn this executive order. Uh, What happened was the court ruled in favor of these special interest groups on, on a small piece of the executive order. And that is that former presidents cannot indefinitely claim executive privilege on documents. They can still do it, but it's 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 the measure of length there, which is it can't be indefinitely now. Now my final uh, a case I want to go over really quick is uh, uh, one of the more current executive privilege claims and that has to do with the US attorney's firings uh, uh, within the uh, Department of Justice. What had happened is during the second half of President Bush's administration he uh, sought to uh, uh, at least the administration and Department of Justice in the White House counsel's office sought to get rid of some of the uh, quote-unquote underperforming uh, US attorneys or at least that's what the claim was. Now. The uh, Congress started investigating this after hearing newspaper reports saying that there was a, a, a partisanship in this and it was a, a, a political corruption issue. Uh, uh, you know, some of these U.S. attorneys weren't doing what the politicians wanted them to be doing, uh, prosecuting certain immigration cases, so on and so forth. Well, the Senate and House Judiciary Committees initiated an investigation. That investigation uh, resulted in the request for documents and testimony by uh, White House sta- staff and uh, Department of Justice in- individuals. Uh, the administration uh, gave some documents, uh, but they refused other documents and they also refused to uh, allow for the uh, White House counsel, Harriet Myers, to testify uh, uh, among others. Now. What happened here, and it's interesting, and I think it's, it, it touches on a, a broader issue of executive power, which is this claim that the administration has made. And this is a brand new claim of executive power, which is absolute immunity. immunity. And what this means is they have President uh, Bush's former staffers, current staffers, uh, have absolute immunity from going before Congress and testifying. Traditionally, what happens is former uh, uh, staffers current and former staffers, what they do is uh, when Congress requests them to uh, appear for testimony, uh, they go and they uh, say, I can't talk about this and make an executive privilege claim on a question by question basis. Here that's not the case. What happened was uh, the Bush administration said no to even appearing. Um, Currently this is in the courts, in the D.C. District, actually D.C. Circuit Court, the district court. Uh, held that there is no basis in law or history for his absolute immunity claim. But what Bush is trying to do, or the administration is trying to do, is expand presidential power in this case, and they're hoping to uh, uh, press it uh, as far as they can go, and right now it's in the circuit court, and uh, they're not going to hear uh, this case until early January at, at their earliest. Um, I'll end on this. I think. The, the Bush administration's uh, flawed reasoning with the U.S. attorney's firings case with absolute immunity, I, I think it's an executive order, uh, also a, a flawed use of presidential power, is largely going to uh, uh, recede into history and uh, I don't believe it's going to be a valid uh, precedent for President Obama or future presidents to use. Um, I will end by again saying that uh, President Obama, if he's going to do anything to counter President Bush's actions, he will first take on the executive order, modify that, and then, all, second, is with the U.S. Uh, attorney's case, he'll compromise with Congress in releasing documents and uh, test, or at least telling former staffers that there's no absolute immunity that guards them from uh, congressional testimony. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks for those great presentations. Uh, Once again, we have a period of time for question and answer. Please wait for the microphone to arrive and then pose your uh, comments in the form of a question. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, This question is for uh, Dale Herspring. Uh, Are you aware and would you comment on the uh, fact that uh, 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 Don Brunsfeld, while he was a counselor to uh, President Richard Nixon, was also a naval reservist, <laughs> which I'm very much aware of because we saved, served in the same unit supporting the uh, air boss of the
2: uh, CNO. Yeah, see, I mean, he was, in fact, what he, what he did is when he, when he finished college, he went in through our he went in and became a pilot, became an instructor, and he had the connections, but I mean, uh, it's never, in, my, in writing this entire book, which goes, I think, through most of his life, it's never figured very prominently. My opinion. Yes,
3: sir. Uh, I, I'm curious could
0: you, uh, uh, Mr. Fisher, could you talk more? Is it Professor or Mr.? Could you talk about uh, Cheney's uh, claim to independence, if you will, uh, as neither a member of the executive branch or the legislative branch? and how does all that fit into this discussion you
3: want You want me to say something uh, coherent about something that's incoherent? <laughs> it's know it's <laughs> crazy talk. It's about as good as Sarah Palin's uh, understanding of what a vice president does uh, runs the Senate. I don't know why uh, Cheney and his, uh, his attorney, David Addington, very smart people, I don't know why they would come up with such a, you know, once a position of legal constitutional principles gets on Jay Leno, he's done something wrong, so I don't think it makes any sense. I just want to add one thing to Mitch, I'm talking about the examples why this administration would have picked the first executive privilege, the Boston FBI, Mitch didn't have a chance to go into it, but one of the uh, things about it that was not too uh, attractive was that the FBI uh, had been willing to send innocent people to prison for 10, 20 years in order to maintain access to information from informants. So that was one of the things they would, yeah. they, they trotted out <laughs> as their first example.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh,
1: thank you, Dr. Hospital for the wonderful presentation and for your honesty. Uh, you mentioned that for a period of six months, Rumsfeld uh, did not talk to Kenseki there was any uh, investigation from the Congress and Senate and the President. These three branches found out. They were not talking to each other and how the system was functioning.
2: Well, what happened is Rumsfeld was convinced that the future of warfare lay in high technology. You can get rid of troops and use high tech instead. That was that, and that's why when we went into the Iraq situation, it was all set up that way. He kept fighting for fewer and fewer troops. The situation was so bad that on 9 8, he made a speech in the Pentagon, uh, accusing the Pentagon of not being with, with it, not knowing what was going on. And there was an awful lot of talk in Washington that he'd be the first one to leave. Uh, 9 11, and we'd be, we then got the rock star, and everybody knows what happened. You couldn't get rid of him after that. But the relationship between the military and Rumsfeld, let me give you an example. The first thing he did when he came into office, he held a meeting because he wanted, wanted to worry about uh, transforming the military there was not a single military officer present. And you know, if that doesn't send you a signal when you're on the JCS or you're one of your chief of staff or chief of naval operations, you're not even included. Give me another example. Um, I don't know how much you know about the formality of military things, but Stephen Cambone, who was one of his senior deputies, held a meeting with three stars, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine. And he walks into the room a half hour late which in the military, you can be a half hour early, but God's pity if you're a half hour late, uh, five minutes late, um, and he walked in the room and he says, well, tell me guys, what do you think about transformation? Uh, these, are three star, uh, these are three stars, and uh, they just sort of sat there dumb, what do you mean? What do we mean? We're busy people, tell us what you're doing. <laughs> The next time he had a meeting with them, um, he, he, uh, he walked in and they refused to say a word. They wouldn't say anything, and the, the comment made by one of the senior officers afterwards was, if I was in combat and I had one bullet left, I'd shoot that son of a bitch first and let the enemy come in. I mean, that's exactly where these people were in the level of animosity toward Rumsfeld. It's not that, look, the military has to be controlled. The military officers know that. I mean, you take an oath for that. And it's not like they're gonna go out and run a coup or something. Too much, too much we spent all the time worrying about running a coup. The Russian military didn't run a coup. The Russian military was livid because of Yeltsin. Provided. No, no leadership just screwed them right and left. And what they want is somebody who's in charge and tells them, here's what we're going to do, and don't get involved in operational tactical things like like Linda uh, Johnson in Vietnam. You know, they're not going to bomb an outhouse without me telling them to. Um, they expect to be, they want the respect, that's all. And Rumsfeld gave them no respect, came in and said, these bunch of old farts do not know what the hell they're doing. I'm going to change the military. I'm going to make it where it's supposed to be. And guess what? The military hated it. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, that, you know, that, and for example, another example, General Zinni, who was a four star, who, who was uh, CENTCOM, uh, knew more about Iraq than anybody around. He had criticized Rumsfeld, as a consequence, General Franks, who had been Zinni's deputy, and was now a CENTCOM, was forbidden to talk to Zinni. <laughs> Zinni was declared, uh, for some non he couldn't even talk to him. And Zinni knew that, and one of the things that Zinni did, that most have it he understood the culture. He understood the place. I talked to him. And uh, he was basically, you know, you can't you can't deal with them. I mean I could go on and on and on. Read the book if you want. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty well I it's very well documented. I'm not to sell the book. But if you want to buy fight, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read the book. Why the Congress and Presidents did not interfere and correct the mistake. That's a, the, the, let me go first to the president. Because the president was a CEO. And the CEO he had his he had he was, he was the president of the corporation. Cheney was the CEO. Russell was in charge, the president's attitude was he did not interfere in what went on in, in one department. Just as you have a CEO who says, I'm not gonna interfere in marketing, I'm not gonna interfere the problem is if you have a marketing office or you have finance, you know if they're working or not because these profits go up. When you do that with the military, you don't have that kind of, a, you can't put it in numbers. What you have to do is go in and look at the flexibility and work with them. I mean, a lot of these guys have been 30 years uh, driving submarines or driving planes. They know what the hell they're doing. Uh, if you've ever been around some of these places, I mean, walk inside of a submarine someday. And if that doesn't intimidate the hell out of you, you've got something wrong with you. Because you've got, you know, they used to have wooden ships and iron men. That I understand. But now that they've got the whole different technology, it's a very difficult thing. And it's very difficult for for an outsider to come in and simply say, oh, well, we'll just move the troops over here. I mean, I've written a book from going from Roosevelt to the president. And when the president's like Lyndon Johnson tried to do that, the chief came within that close of all resigning because of uh, Lyndon Johnson's interference telling them in Washington which planes could bomb which area. And you know, George Bush I, in my opinion, based on the book I wrote, had by far the best relationship with the military. He would come come in, he would tell them what what he wanted done. Colin Powell would come in and say, sir, here's our operation for Panama, here's how we intend to do it. Here's our operation for Desert Storm 1, here's how we intend to do it. He'd ask questions, and they listened to him, uh, Jimmy Carter was was good in, in one sense on, on Tehran. All he said is avoid collateral damage, and the mm-hmm. military the military planned it and screwed it up all by themselves. <laughs> and then Jimmy Carter took, took responsibility for it, which they respected. I'm going on. I
1: have one, I'm not uh, sorry, sorry, we, oh, we have several other, other people. Yeah. Yes, in the back. Just a, a quick follow-up to what uh, Professor Hurstberg just remarked. Oh, thank you. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm Joe Dugan. I I've worked in the last three Republican administrations and uh, even had a little, worked for a little while for, for Dick Cheney, but don't know him that well. But
4: my question is about Mr. Cheney. How do you explain uh, the success of the Bush 1 administration, that president's relationship with the military, uh, and Secretary Cheney's leadership in that
1: administration with the problems you perceive with? Mike Cheney is vice president.
2: Well, from what I can from what I can see, first of all, the first administration you had Colin Powell. As I said before, I consider him probably the most important figure in the last 20 years in political military affairs in the United States, despite that he didn't uh, that he was he was basically pushed aside in in the State Department, where he was loved by the by the FSOs. But Cheney basically uh, during that time had a good relationship with Powell. In fact, they, they clashed on several occasions and Powell backed off and he said frankly, you know, he backed off. The, the, the thing that bothers the military, I think was best stated by Powell, when he and, 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 and um, oh, what's her name, a former Secretary of State? Um, Albright. They were having a meeting on what to do with Bosnia. And as they're sitting around, uh, Albright says, well, Colin, why not use those soldiers? Let them go. And Colin said, I almost had an aneurysm. These are people. These are people who are gonna die. And you don't send people in uniform in Unless you're damn sure it's necessary. And here she was, just these are ten soldiers. She said, Go send them in and take them in. And and Powell blew his cork. And they didn't do it then. But there that's the problem that you're into in Washington, and it's not Democrat or Republican, it's it's civilians who don't understand how the military thinks, or else who assume they're to play things. They're not. I mean you, you talk to somebody whose husband didn't come back, find out real quick. Don't use them unless you damn well need them. And I think that, the, so far, I'm gonna say, honestly, yeah, I consider myself sort of a slightly uh, conservative Republican, which may sound strange right in this, but uh, I cannot find fault with any of Obama's appointments. None. I mean, I know the far left doesn't like him very much, but I, frankly, from somebody who's trying to be in the middle, I cannot fault any of his national security appointments, period. Some are more liberal than I would care to be, but they're all solid, and I think that, think that the good keeping Gates is a brilliant idea. Keeping Mike Mullen as, a, as chairman is a brilliant idea. What Gates has done is rebuilt trust in, in, in the military. And that is so damn important. I mean, if people say, well, you either wo- reward them or you pound them. No, you don't do that. That's not what leadership is. Leadership is getting people who want to follow you. That's what leadership is all about. That's when you go in the military. I, mean, it's not, it's, I can order him to go do there. But, I, but, if he, but if he wants to do what I want to do, I get 10,000 uh, more results out of him than if I just sit there and play, look, I got more strike than you do, now you do it. Sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you come down to that when well, somebody's just a jackass and you have to. But leadership is getting people who want to follow you. And that's what Gates has done. I've known Gates for many years. When I was, He was in CIA as a Soviet analyst. I was in the State Department as a, doing Soviet stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm amazed at how fast he went, how far he went. Um, I can tell you there's one funny story and then I'll shut up. He was in Moscow, and I've always wanted to ask him this, he was in Moscow with the, with the president and Gorbachev, and Gorbachev was then talking and said, asking him to see his watch. Well, Gates showed him his watch, Gorbachev put it on, and the rumor is Gates lost the watch. It never been it never been replaced until Gorbachev walked off with it. I asked Gorbachev when he was at K-State, and he sort of laughed and wouldn't, wouldn't answer me. <laughs> I better shut up are other people who need to talk. Yes, ma'am. Now. Yeah. My question is about executive
1: privilege. Um, Professor Vizella, you define executive privilege as generally accepted, limited power subject to a balancing test. Now obviously the fulcrum of that balance has varied from administration to administration. Uh, looking at the Bush presidency what are some of the broadly speaking some of the key factors which have tipped that balance towards executive privilege?
4: Uh, well Um, Bush's boldness in exercising uh, this authority in a number of circumstances that I think broke new ground in terms of uh, the definition of the proper scope of this constitutional principle. So uh, Mitch was talking about, for example, in that part of our paper, um, the administration making the claim that it could withhold documents pertaining to Uh, investigations in the Justice Department, even in cases of long long ago closed investigations. That was a unique argument. Um, There's been a long-standing understanding that, of course, for cases of ongoing investigations, you don't want to compromise information that's critical to those investigations. So it's commonsensical, of course, that there should be uh, some protection there. Um, But the uh, the, the necessity of, secretness, of secrecy wanes over time as administrations you know, leave office. Uh, again, the, the argument that former presidents possess an Article II power of the presidency that they may exercise even in cases where the incumbent president disagrees with the decision of the former president. In that executive order, the decision of the former president would trump the incumbent president on the exercise of an Article II power of the presidency. Um, extending the power of executive privilege to the designated family representative of a former president in cases where former presidents may not be able to make the decisions themselves, which was at the time a concession to the Reagan situation, of course. But as one constitutional law scholar said when we were testifying uh, on the Hill one afternoon, uh, literally, the, the pizza delivery guy called by Nancy Reagan could be given an Article II power of the presidency if she decided he's a designated representative of the family uh, you know, to make this decision on behalf of you know, a, a dispute over Reagan-related papers. Um, and then the whole matter of absolute immunity for um, uh, current and even former administration officials. Uh, as Mitch was pointing out, It's more customary for administration officials to testify when called to do so Um, and if there are matters of great national import that would violate the principle of executive privilege certainly on uh, the order of the president, on instruction by the president, uh, they could claim executive privilege in response to a question that would trench on presidential secrecy um, but they can answer all the other questions that don't trench on presidential secrecy, which is probably going to be at least 95% or more of the exchange that goes on in that congressional hearing. So uh, making the argument that they um, should not testify, that they should have absolute immunity because at some point a question may arise that trenches on presidential secrecy, I think just stretches credibility uh, on the use of the principle of executive privilege. So. Um, my my first publication academically years ago was called In Defense of Executive Privilege. And I ultimately (laughs) wrote a book on the principle, uh, which was largely a reaction against another book that disputed the existence of the principle of executive privilege. So I'm, I'm a believer in this concept as constitutionally grounded and necessary in many circumstances. Yet, I find myself over time increasingly appalled at the way that some presidents have applied this principle, particularly uh, Nixon, Clinton, and uh, current President Bush. Yeah. I wanted to
3: make a point, uh, just to add to that, that yes, why this uh, President Bush has used it uh, so strongly and actually effectively. Uh, a lot of us say that if one political party controls both Congress and the White House, you won't get much oversight, but that's not true. And if you think of the Carter years, the Democratic Congress, particularly the Democratic House, mm-hmm. went after departments for information. And if the information wasn't given up, they subpoenaed and they'd hold the cabinet head in contempt. And they did that regularly and they got the information. And I think several things, and you mention mm-hmm. one, you can hold people in contempt and the justice department will say, we're not going to go to grand jury. Mm-hmm. And Congress doesn't seem to have a, a, uh, understanding of itself is a separate branch that has a duty to protect uh, the committees and subcommittees that have responsibilities. Uh, responsibility so the just the sea change, even in the, from the cardinal until
0: now. Yeah. It, PIGGYBACKING ON uh, Lou's POINT, WHICH IS uh, CONGRESSIONAL POWER TO COUNTERBALANCE uh, PRESIDENTIAL POWER, I THINK THAT'S TELLING WITHIN THE BUSH ADMINISTRATION. I mean, HERE YOU HAVE, WITH THIS ABSOLUTE IMMUNITY CLAIM, a, a, a AN INVESTIGATION BY BOTH THE SENATE AND HOUSE JUDICIARY COMMITTEES And at this time, why this is all going on and the uh, the Department of Justice and the uh, White House Counsel's office is saying, we're not going to give you this certain information. We're not going to allow Harriet Myers to testify, yada, yada. Well, they have a confirmation hearing for the Attorney General. If I was a Senate Judiciary Committee, I would have said, you're not getting this person confirmed. You're not going to get much out of this in terms of appropriations and judicial confirmations until you do X, Y, and Z. And and that kind of pushback can happen. And it happened early on in the administration. By the way, when the Republicans were controlling the Senate uh, before the Jeffords switch, what happened was you had uh, Senator Boxer and Senator Feinstein, the two Democratic senators from California, they were uh, cut out of the uh, lower court judicial appointment process. They st- Bush was about ready to pick uh, Christopher Cox. I can't remember if it was for an appellate level or a or district level uh, pick there. But he was about ready to pick uh, Christopher Cox, a conservative uh, 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 Republican from California. They said, no, we're going to filibuster this person. We'll filibuster anybody in California unless you get us into the process. Uh, even individual members of Congress have tremendous power. The problem is, is the willingness of Congress to combat presidential power, and I think that's what you saw in that case where they did, where they did do it, and also you saw the lack of will during the Energy Task Force case, and that had, does directly result of Vice President Cheney's office pressing uh, a secrecy claim uh, within the Bush administration.
4: I want to tell one quick story on that on that regard because I think it makes the case very well. In early 2002, uh, the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee was doing its investigation of the Boston mob case and the Republicans, of course, controlled the chamber at that time. President Bush made his claim of executive privilege. Uh, The chairman of the committee, Dan Burton, called this hearing. Uh, Everybody showed up and a Republican member asked for the privilege to, to speak for a moment and he says, I got a call from the White House last night asking me to back off. You know, 9-11 just happened and, uh, you know, this is a difficult time for the country. And he said, let me tell you what I think of that phone call. Uh, And then used some rather salty language to uh, describe his feelings about what the administration was trying to do in overreaching and using executive privilege and appealing to a Republican on partisan sentiments that you should back off during this difficult time. Another member says, "I got that phone call too last night," and this went member by member, Republicans. Uh, so, you know, this it's a good example of how members can, in some cases, put aside their um, partisan preferences and, uh, it, uh, and 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 their you know, relationship with the president to say that this is profoundly wrong, and we have to stand up institutionally for our rights, even if the president is of our own political party, and it might serve our temporary political interest to help him out. So uh, unfortunately, that doesn't happen often enough. Great. Uh, time for one more question.
3: Here.
4: Yeah. Yes, sir.
1: Yeah, this is uh, Mr. Hirshburn. This is a brief comment. Uh, you're saying that you need to respect the military. But I think in some cases, the military uh, uses this as a way to shield itself from criticism. Uh, I mean, uh, the military also has to respect the civilian leadership. And I think uh, they didn't respect Bill Clinton because he evaded the Vietnam draft, but he has elected the president. So I think the respect has to flow both ways. And many times, uh, after Vietnam, I was certainly very... uh, Horrible that these people got Shanghai by the government uh, drafted to Vietnam, and then were uh, had tomatoes thrown at them by the people when they got home. And I think, but I think now we we've, we've reacted to that too far. We're we're afraid to criticize the military. I mean, the military has been blindly incompetent in Iraq. They didn't uh, they didn't choose to learn guerrilla uh, counterinsurgency after Vietnam. I mean, if uh, John Kennedy would follow military advice, sort would have been a nuclear war. There have been plenty of. Uh, Instances where the military has been uh, incompetent or downright wrong. And I think that respect has to flow both ways, and uh, the military shouldn't use this. We shouldn't go by by the the, um, assumption that the military is always going to be right, and we can't offer any criticism. And I think that's what we're down to. No, I see no military criticism of the military over Iraq.
2: No, I think we need to do more. Let me say, first of all, uh, about Kennedy, that was the first time the military had been asked to get into the political arena. And yes, you know, uh, bombed them into the stone age. We had that from you know our, our famous Air Force General and it was incompetent, no question about that. Um, Iraq is more complicated. Iraq, it was partially the army, it was partially Casey, it was also Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld, oh, he dictated the thing. That. And it was only, people think that the reason things have changed in Iraq is because of the surge. Okay, that's probably 25% of what happened. 75% of what happened was with Petraeus, and I talked to him about it. And he went in and he changed the whole strategy from frontal conflict, where you go out and fight and then go back <coughs> to your little base in the night, to you go out with the people, you sit out there, you're there with them. That, this 10-man unit is out with a 10-man Iraqi unit, and that plus the fact that the the uh, uh, Sunnis in Anbar became, you know, we don't like the Americans, but we sure as hell like them a lot better than we do Al Qaeda. And so they decided to cooperate, provided, I mean, there's just been too many reports, provided you promise to leave. And I mean, my son-in-law's been in combat and, and in Afghanistan, trying to do the same thing. And did the military be criticized? Yes. The, uh, was it, the F-32? That had been around, the, the Raptor that and been F-22, I guess, it is, that's been around with a free-for-all. Will the military rip you off if it can? Absolutely. And what I'm talking is, the military is going to be political, whether you like it or not, because you're going to ask them political questions. And, but do they follow what they're told? Yes, they do, and will they play games? look, starting with Harry Truman, the military figured out, figured out hey, there's media out there. Aha, uh-huh, we're going to use the media, and, and, and the Navy in particular, a big battle they had under Harry Truman with the Navy. And the Navy went out and used, used the media as much as they could to try and undermine Truman. That's politics. Conflict is part of the system, and absolutely should the military be criticized? You them. And, I, and I, I'd be the first one to stand alongside you and do it and the, thing, the famous case and grenade it. The military screwed that up bad. I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, Storm Norman was a two-star, sent, sent, sent to be there uh, as the Army representative. He's on, a, he's on a carrier and he gets the orders that they want to take best Army Rangers and they have to be sent to point A. So Storm Norman goes to the Marine colonel in charge of the, air, the helicopters and says, I need to put these guys over there. The colonel says, well, sorry, Marine helicopters don't carry soldiers. And Storm Norman said, look, let's get down to the basics. I'm a two-star general, and you're a colonel. If you want to end up in Leavenworth, you go right ahead. But I damn will suggest you get those people on the plane and the helicopters. as Stupidity, yes. The whole thing about trying to get special operations to work together has been a long struggle. And, and you, when I was in uh, Hawaii with Admiral Blair, and I was sent down to the special ops people, here, what do you have? You have the guy in charge, the Navy captain, his assistant's an Army Army lieutenant colonel, and you've got an Air Force lieutenant colonel. You've got all these people integrated like this together. That has taken a long time, and I would be the first one to say to you, criticize the military, and if they're not big enough boys to take it, then the hell with help them, because they, they deserve it. But on the other hand, if you're in the place, work with them. That's all I'm saying, is don't sit there and start off and say, you're all a bunch of jackasses and stupid, and so I'm gonna take charge. They're, you know, they're a pretty strong bureaucracy, and they can they can be your friend and they can be your foe, and sometimes you have to step on them and say, I look, I don't care about your your F-22 Raptor, you're not going to get any more, and that's exactly what Gates is doing right now. Gates has stomped on the military a couple times, but he stomped on it with working with them. There are a lot of generals who don't like the fact that we switched to um, counterinsurgency, but now if you look at the last promotion panel, for example, what did he do? He put uh, Petraeus in charge of it, and guess what? People like McMaster who've been passed over twice now, now are our BGs. There are about seven BG promotions all out of the special operations and that whole world. And the regular army would have never done that, but he, he chose a general to do it. So yes, you have to. I mean, it's conflict. Conflict is normal. but just try and work with them is against them. That's all I'm saying. Well, thank you very much.